Good evening, everyone. Our sermon tonight, our sermon text, is from the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the living God. We say, Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful for this, your word. We're grateful for the song you just sang. We sing that Jesus is our guide and our friend. It's a wonderful statement. It, it seems too good to be true, and I pray that if it is too good to be true for anyone in here, that you'll make it clear to them that it's possible to be a friend of Jesus. And he died. He was risen from the dead. And that we can cling to him as Lord and Savior and God and even as friend. Make that clear tonight, even in this text. Sharpen us. And may we see him as glorious. In Christ's name, amen. I remember first learning about caravans, caravans of tribal peoples who trekked across the Sahara Desert. And it's a puzzle because I could not reckon why anyone would do such a thing. I first saw this when I was a child. The Sahara, of course, is extremely hot, food is scarce. You've likely seen image, images of these sorts of caravans, that classic image, merchants crossing the Sahara, camels are following other camels, and these caravan, caravans, these lines of animals stretch into a long line and, and wind their way through the dry sand and over the dunes. There's no water to be found, no shelter. It looks miserable. And it's fascinating to note that a great number of these caravans went on these long journeys only to purchase salt, hundreds of miles into the desert for salt. Men risked their lives for this one thing because it is that vital for society. It's an essential element for all sorts of things. And it is this element that Jesus compares his disciples to. You are the salt of the earth, he says. In the next few verses, Jesus compares his people to lights in the world. Light also is essential. It's fundamental to our existence. Recall that light is actually the first thing that God creates. Let there be light. And so there was light. And God saw the light. And he saw that it was good. Light's essential for sight. It's essential for vegetation. For the foods we eat. It's fundamental to our health. 
And as we will see in Scripture, light is not merely about granting physical but spiritual life. So this evening, we're in the middle of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And here, in one of his earliest and most foundational teachings, Jesus calls his disciples these essential components, salt and light. And my argument this evening is this, is that you, Christian, are fundamental for the good that happens in society. Just as salt and light are foundational to a healthy society, so too is the church. So let's look at the placement of these verses for a moment and add some more context. Beginning of chapter 5, if you'll look, Jesus ascends the top of a mountain and begins teaching. This is perhaps his most famous of teachings, and throughout this set of teachings, he restates God's law. This conjures up memories of Moses, for it was Moses. He also went atop a mountain to mediate God's laws. But here, before Jesus mediates his law, Jesus first describes who are the people of God. Who is it that God favors? Who is it that God makes his own? The answer, verses 3 to 12. These verses are what is called the Beatitudes. If you're like me, you formally call them the Beatitudes. If you want to know who God favors, who God blesses, read these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These sound strange to a natural person, don't they? Why are the ones who are poor in spirit, or those who mourn, or those who are downcast, why is it those people who are given the kingdom? Why is it those people who are comforted by God? They're the ones who see their need for God. That's one answer. They see their sin, their shame, their brokenness. They see their need for God to reach down and heal them. Jesus comes for the sick, not the healthy. It is the needy who cry out for help, and it is the needy who receive the help. The proud are not in the Beatitudes. They are not blessed by God. The rich in spirit, the haughty, are not here. Let's move further down the list. Blessed are the meek, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are persecuted. These are the ones who God favors. These are the traits of Jesus' disciples. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he says that at the time when they were called into the Christian faith, not many of Jesus' disciples were wise according to the flesh. Not many were mighty. Not many were noble. Instead, Paul goes on, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. It is those chosen by God. It is the foolish of the world who are the salt of the earth. It is the ones who exemplify the Beatitudes, who are the light of the world. We cannot understand our passage tonight without recognizing the connection between these two sections of Scripture. And the question is this, are you poor in spirit? Are you meek? Are you pure in heart? Are you? Well then, you are salt in the hand of God. That's the message. In verses 13, 14, 
15 and 16. So if the Beatitudes are a description of who the Christian is, verses 13 to 16 then, these verses tell us what Christians are to do. These are our instructions. This is our purpose. You are to act as salt. Jesus is saying this. You are salt. Now, therefore, be salty. Do not lose your saltiness. Your saltiness is what's useful about you. It's inevitable. We will be tempted to conform to the world. We must resist that so that we may fulfill our purpose here on earth. That's the message. Why would Jesus call his disciples salt? We'll get to light in a moment, but first, why does he call us salt? First, it's not an entirely new concept that first appears in Matthew. We see this in the Old Testament. In some cases, it's, it's used negatively. Lot's wife was turned into salt after looking back, you'll remember, to Sodom and Gomorrah. And she disobeyed God, and she turned into a pillar of salt. In Deuteronomy 29, if Israel disobeyed, there would be curses. And one of the signs that the land of Israel would be cursed was that the land would be brimstone, salt, and burning. Salt, in this case, is a sign of cursing. It's a negative thing. This is the sort of salt that is thrown out, that's trampled underfoot. It's good for nothing. On the other hand, salt was used in a positive sense in the Old Testament as well. A number of the offerings made to the Lord on the altar, they would be sprinkled with salt. And in 2 Chronicles, we can read that God describes the covenant he made with David. He refers to it as a covenant of salt. This is from 2 Chronicles 13. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons, by a covenant of salt? a good thing. It can be a negative thing, but in Matthew 5, it's definitely a good thing. Perhaps Jesus is borrowing on some of this Old Testament language, but in my view, I think he's really just borrowing from nature. Everyone knows what salt is. Salt is common, and it makes for a relatable, a bit of a provocative image, doesn't it? This is the sort of thing that can strike people. You are the salt of the earth. One reason is salt is the most essential of all seasonings. It's that magic ingredient that draws out the best of flavors. Our pastor Ryan Davidson knows this well. If you go to his house, he's always sprinkling the salt in. Salt is key to creating good flavors. Not just that salt flavor, but it is key to bringing out all sorts of other good flavors. And another purpose for salt, the second one, is that it is used as a preservative. Why are those guys going out into the desert? Primarily, it's to preserve their food back home. They need that salt. Foods are preserved, and the life of foods are prolonged if it's used generously. It prevents decay. And in a similar way, Christians, the church, God's law, these prevent sin in society. The mere presence of a church on the corner, that's a good thing for the city. And the mere presence of a Christian can be a deterrent from sin. I recall a season in my life in which I was rebelling, and the presence of a few key Christians made a wonderful 
wonderful effect on me. One of these guys was on my soccer team. He never confronted me in my sin. It was just his presence that did the trick. There were times where I'd be misbehaving and I'd consider him. I'd consider what he thought. I'd consider that he thought certain things would be inappropriate. His presence caused a simple hesitation in me. And it had a wonderful, salty effect at a time in my life where I really, really needed it. Sometimes I felt guilty just being around him. He didn't talk about my sin. He didn't sit me down and read me the Ten Commandments. He was just there. He was just on my team, living like a Christian in the midst of a bunch of wicked teenage unbelievers. He was a reminder, though, to me of what I should strive to be like. He was salt. Every so often I call him up to remind him of these things. What a gift this brother was to me. Like salt, he prevented decay. He did not deter everything I did, but he was a wonderful prevention in my life. Salt is also useful for healing. Surely Jesus also had this in mind when he was using this metaphor. Salt, especially in his day, was a common ingredient to heal. Even today, sodium is regularly used in a great number of our medicines and ointments. So the metaphor, I think, makes good sense. Since it's Christ's people who are to be the ones who take good care of the sick and the hurting. The church is to fulfill her purpose. We're to emulate God. And this is the way God is described in Psalm 147. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. Charles Spurgeon, he has an entire sermon on this verse. And the title of it is Christ's Hospital. That's a good name for the church, isn't it? Christ's Hospital. We're a place for healing, aren't we? To be Jesus' hands and feet, to be the salts of the earth, is to use our resources for the healing of those who are hurting. The fourth reason I think Jesus uses this metaphor of salt, salt makes people thirsty. This is something that Sinclair Ferguson stresses in his teaching on this passage. Salt creates thirst. So if you are salt, if I am salt, if we the church, if we are the salt of the earth, we are causing thirst in the world. People know they are thirsty when they see our Hope. Think about that. And I think Peter recognized this aspect of the church's duty in, in, in his letter. He instructs the church, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. It's, it's as if Peter knew that the church would cause people to be thirsty. They're going to ask you. They're thirsty. They're going to ask you, where is your hope coming from? The world has no hope, for they are apart from Christ. And if we're living amongst the peoples of this world, if we're full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, if we are displaying such fruit in the midst of this generation, surely, these are good things, aren't they? And if we're displaying them, surely people are going to be thirsty. This is choice fruit. It is the best of fruit. And if the name of Jesus is, is on our lips, and if we speak of him, 
If we speak of him as if we speak of a friend, surely that too will sound wonderful, at least to some who are perishing. Surely that will also cause them to be thirsty. And if we tell them of Jesus' great deeds and his teachings, they will thirst for even more. And if we tell them, especially of that most wretched day in which Jesus was crucified, he was nailed to the cross, and he bore the wrath of God, if we tell them that in his great love with which he loved us, that he died so that sinners may avoid the wrath of God, so that sinners may be made into saints, surely this truth, it's going to cause people to be thirsty. And we'll cry out. And our job is just to tell them where the water is. Moving further to Matthew 5, there's a warning, Christian. Here is the warning. You can lose your saltiness. The end of verse 13. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? If it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So disobeying God's commands, acting foolish, acting like the world, such things will wash away your saltiness. We must not be watered down by the ways of the world. We must remain distinct. We must remain set apart. We must be transformed, as the apostle says. We must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Good salt has a punch to it. It has an edge to it, doesn't it? And in effect, this warning instructs us to keep your edge, Christian. Keep your saltiness. Don't apologize for it. Let your salt have its effect in the world. The effect will not always be pleasant for some people. Some people will not like you. Salt stings when it, make con- when it makes contact with an open infection. We should expect some to wince. And as a result, we should expect some to try to mellow, mellow us out. Have you ever had someone do that? I'm happy you're a Christian, but just mellow out, man. Try to water you down. And the instruction here is to keep the edge, keep the punch, keep your saltiness. And if you resist, some will think you're a weirdo. It's not a technical term, but they will call you a weirdo. 1 Peter 4.4, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. So Peter says, don't be surprised. They are surprised that you're not sinning. But Peter goes on. Rest assured, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Our Lord Jesus is the prime example of what it means to be Salty. He does this in all sorts of ways. Let me use this one as he's confronting the Pharisees. This from Matthew chapter 23. He's describing the scribes and the Pharisees. He says they like to sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say they do not do 
They bind any burdens hard to bear and lay on them men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. And Jesus goes on. And the Pharisees, of course, hate this. So he's calling out their sin. And this, of course, is what it means to be the light of the world. He's exposing the darkness. He's exposing the evil. And this is the second illustration in our passage tonight. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. These themes of light and darkness are seen throughout Scripture too. The world and evil itself are described as darkness. Darkness is void. Life cannot be seen in darkness. Evil deeds are done in darkness. This is where the bad folks hang out. They don't linger in the day lest their deeds be exposed. Darkness is even a curse. It's a curse. Recall the plague upon Egypt, the ninth plague. The Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hands toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness which may even be felt. Have you ever felt darkness like that? Darkness that may even be felt. It's a curse in Scripture. Darkness is an awful, awful thing and a symbol for evil. So Moses stretched out his hands toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. What are you going to do if it's that dark outside? They just sat there for three days. And then the scripture says this. This is interesting too, isn't it? But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Light is good. Psalmist says it's a lamp unto our feet and it guides us in the way everlasting. It teaches us the ways of God. The prophet Isaiah picks this theme up, and Matthew quotes Isaiah in a number of places. Isaiah 9 says this, The people who walked in darkness, he's talking about Israel, he's talking about the nations. I think here in particular, he's talking about Israel at the time of Christ. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shone. This is salvation, and this is the image we're given. The image is, a, is about salvation. And later on in the same chapter, this is where we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's Jesus who is the light who is to come into the world. And he says this of himself. This is what John the Baptist calls him. So salvation is coming into the light. Psalm 18 says, For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. That is a prime picture of salvation. So you are light. And light does at least two things. One, it exposes darkness for what it is. Two, it shows the path to life. 
you have your Bibles with me a few verses later, beginning of chapter 6, there's a warning here that we are not to let our light shine. Jesus tells us to let our light shine, to even put our light on a table or on a lampstand. Light is good. It does good for society and good for the world. But in chapter 6, verse 3, it says, When you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. So we're given two teachings here, and at first they might sound like a contradiction. Jesus gives us a warning about showing off. He says we are not to do good works in order that we may be seen by men. But here in our passage, we're told to do the work that we may be seen by men. And to some skeptics of the Bible, this is a contradiction. They seem to be opposed to one another. But of course that's not the case, because what is the common thread? It's the motive, it's the heart. Why are you putting your light on the lampstand? Why are you doing the good deed? Are you doing it so that people can see the glory of the Father in heaven? If so, if it's good for the world, if it's good for people to see this example, then put it on the stand and let them see where your light comes from. The Apostle Paul is a good example of this. The Apostle Paul in Acts 20, he meets with the Ephesian elders. And if you read this passage, it's a long passage, I'm only going to quote a few verses, but if you read this passage in Acts 20, for, for many, many verses, Paul is, is, is describing his ministry among the Ephesians. And he continuously tells the Ephesians about all these good things that he did in their midst. He calls the Ephesian elders... And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility. He calls himself humble. With many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. He's pointing to his own works. He's pointing to his own example. And I think this is what Jesus meant. Let your light so shine before men. Why would Paul do this? Remember, he's, he's teaching the elders what example it is they are to follow. And in this case, it's healthy. Let them see the good deeds I've done. For this will build up the church of Christ. Paul goes on further. You yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the, Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus. He just goes on and on, but why? What's the heart behind it? He's teaching people the ways of Christ. His aim is the glory of God, and he's doing it so that others may know the good example in which to follow 
The missionary, John Payton, does a similar thing. It's most interesting as you open up his autobiography. He has a disclaimer of sorts at the beginning of the biography. And he was reluctant to write his autobiography. He was a missionary in Southeast Asia, island, translated the scripture and saw great fruit. And his life is incredible. The Lord did wonderful things through him. And he almost didn't write it down. And he struggled because he thought it was going to glorify him. But after many people kind of came around and talked to him, he said, I think the proud thing would be to not write it. For the sake of the church, he writes his autobiography. And we see the glory of God work through this man. That's what it means when Jesus says to let your light shine before men. So Christian, how might you shine before men? We're Americans. Many of us, by nature, we don't have a problem doubting ourselves. We don't have a problem taking a stand. We don't have a problem telling people the good things that we've done. But there are times, I think, that within the Church of Christ, we actually play down the light that we're shining. And that's not right either. We're not supposed to go around bragging. On the other hand, some of us, we, we've swung too far, haven't we? We've swung too far, and we're reluctant at times too reluctant to tell people about the light that we are shining in the world. Some will see it and you don't have to say anything. But there are times, if you've ever done a good deed, and people just kind of wonder, it's like, hey, why? Why, did you, why are you doing this? Why are you being so kind? Maybe that's the time to say, well, actually, I'm a Christian, and the Lord Jesus has been really good to me. And, and this is a joy. I'm following in his steps. I think that is how you correct yourself if you've gone too far. Don't put it under a table. There are times, put it on the stand. So you see how essential these two elements are. Salt is necessary. Light is necessary. And these are wonderful things. And if our Lord compares us to these things, that's a wonderful truth. Let me make a bit of a, a, a caveat here. Perhaps you are, perhaps you're wondering why, some of you may be asking this, perhaps some of you are asking, why, why are you saying that, that the church is the light of the world, or that, that you are the light of the world, or that you are the salt of the earth? Isn't it Jesus that's the light of the world? Isn't it Jesus that's the salt of the earth? Shouldn't you say that you are like the light of the world? Shouldn't you say you are like the salt? No. I'm reading the passage. I think it's plain. This is a strong statement. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. It's punchy, but it's true. And if you keep in mind that great doctrine of the union with Christ, you can't separate your good works from Christ. So if I say you are the light of the world, I'm not pretending like you're the one who gets all the credit. 
You are the light of the world. But what's the light in you? It's Christ. What's the salt in the church? It's Christ. I say these things because it's not a soft or weak statement. It's a strong statement from our Lord. A few more things about this. Christian, you are fundamental for the good that happens in society just as salt and light are. Think about all of these exhortations we have in Scripture. We're to pray for those who are in authority above us. We're to seek the welfare of the city. We're to pray for the nation at large. Oppose evil. Seek justice. We could go on and on with the examples of the salt and light that we can be in society at large. Fighting abortion. Ending the slave trade. These are things that Christians have done and done well. We are salt and light. Now here are, I'm going to close with five practical things to keep in mind. These are somewhat brief, but five practical things to keep in mind as you are being salt and light. One is this. Be present. Be present among unbelievers. Notice in both of these illustrations, both of these illustrations take place in the weeds, if you will. Both of these illustrations are in the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You're not to, to go out to some isolated place and have no contact with the world. We are to be in the world. We are to be among people in order to have a salty effect. Secondly, be encouraged that God can use you in ways that you may not see. My friend whom I, I mentioned earlier, this guy, he had a profound effect on me. And he didn't even know it. So think about that for a moment, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. If you are abiding in the vine, the Lord, he might be using you in ways you have no idea about. Be encouraged. Be faithful. <clears throat> Thirdly, pursue holiness. I spoke earlier about the need for us to remain distinct. We must be set apart, and that is really what holiness is. It's to be other. It's to be set apart. And that is what it means to be salty, to retain your saltiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So if you want people to see the Lord, pursue holiness. If you want people to see the Lord, keep your saltiness. You're not salty, they're not going to see the Lord. Not through you. Fourthly, pay particular attention to your speech. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. In the New Testament, we don't hear much else about salt, but here we, we, we read about salt again, and it's about speech. I think that's noteworthy. This particular aspect of holy living is highlighted, and I think for good reason. Crooked speech, it ruins your witness. Before anything else. It's that first thing people are going to notice. Fifthly, 
Expect unbelievers to react dif- differently to your salt and light. At times, people will, will, they will really benefit from your presence. They will be drawn to you. They will be drawn to the Lord because of your saltiness, because of the light that you're shining. At other times, people will hate you for your saltiness. You may do the same good deeds day after day. You may be consistent. You may be unflinching. And the people around you, they may have different reactions. So be prepared for that. And as you do, this is the same sort of thing that happened to Jesus. He was consistent. Day in and day out. Never sinned. Some people gravitated towards him. They loved him. Others couldn't wait to kill him. That's the expectation we should carry with us. Let's pray to him today. Father, we thank you for these words from Jesus in this book of Matthew. I do pray that you will make your truth pierce our hearts. And I pray for us tonight that we may know in our specific circumstances how to let our light shine appropriately, how to be salt. Give us wisdom individually. And may all who hear this, who are not in Christ, come to him. For he is good. And he's died for them. We pray in his name.